Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 130 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, I want to say thank you to Steve Lauterbach. I hope I've said that right. Or Lauterbach. Lauterbach who has supported the Fabulously Keto podcast on Patreon. Each week, the podcast costs money to produce and host, and so any help contributing towards the cost is extremely helpful. I want to try to avoid advertising if I can. We have three levels of support. Um, So if you go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto, you can check them out. So once again, Steve, thank you very much for your support. Louise and I have been touched by your kind messages, best wishes and support that we've received this week. I'm in no rush to eliminate Louise from everything. So I will get round to it and I will do things bit by bit. So you're still here in the intro and the outro and things for a while, um, but we will get there at changing everything. Today, I'm interviewing GP Dr. Karen Malone. Karen was introduced to me by Ollie Lester, who encouraged Karen to come on. So let me tell you a little bit about Karen. Dr. Karen Malone is a GP in Southampton. She has worked as a GP for 13 years. She has a passion for lifestyle medicine and low-carb, high-fat She aims to support patients to make a difference to their life and health without the need to always take medication. She believes that lifestyle comes first and medicine second, and that we need to promote healthy living at every opportunity. She's concerned about the diabetes pandemic and population health, particularly in areas of deprivation. She's also frustrated by those who are still sticking by the mantra of calories in, calories out. She herself generally sticks to low-carb, high-fat way of eating where she can. She likes to run and exercise regularly. She believes in creating a healthy work environment, though not always met with positive reactions. So let's go and listen to Karen. Welcome, Dr. Karen, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. And thank you for having me. And we always start by asking, where in the world are you? So I'm living in Southampton in Hampshire in the UK. Brilliant. Is that where you're from? or? So I'm originally from Norfolk um, and then moved a little bit after I was about 18 to pretty much down south. Uh, and then went to medical school in Southampton. That's where I've been since... Um, 
2005. Excellent. Brilliant. So you're a GP. And do you want to start by telling us your story, how you got into low carb, what brought you here? And we'll take it from there. Yeah, sure. So I've been giving quite a lot of thought about this. So essentially, yeah, I'm a GP since 2010. Um, and I think from 2012, I've been working at a lovely practice with some really nice colleagues. Um, and then I seriously do not remember when I got into low carb. And I know some people have that real sort of trigger moment. And I probably did, but I just simply don't know where it when it was. So I think probably that the last four or five years, I think, Somehow I heard about it. I don't know if that was via David Unwin or Professor Noakes, but I think they're probably my two biggest influences. Influences, um, and I think that then once I started hearing a little bit about it and the you know the amazing work that David Unwin's doing in terms of helping his patients reverse their type two diabetes and. Um, Prof Noakes, who's done so much to try and help move the um, society on in their different sort of thinking processes. I think I was sort of went down that road. And then I think from there, it's it's one of those things. That I think once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I think I just really developed a passion for trying to help my patients and friends and family, you know, um, trying to make a difference and, and make changes, essentially. Yeah. It always amazes me that some doctors will hear about it and they will investigate, look further, whatever it is, run with it. And others are so closed off and just poo-poo it and are really not interested. What what makes the difference, do you think? I actually don't know if the people who when you say they're looking at it and then almost choose to ignore it or put it as a side issue I don't think they really are looking at it because I think if you really critically analyze the data I I don't think you could make any other conclusion other than that low carb diets and keto are or have such an amazing positive impact on so many diseases and that's not just diabetes it's on fatty liver disease it's on inflammatory conditions like inflammatory bowel disorders um, and and there's now so much um investigation now going into Im impact on mental health yeah so you know which i think is absolutely amazing so i think there's so many conditions that it can be helpful with and i think that in terms of medics i mean i think that does really frustrate me particularly i think the endocrinologists so the diabetologists so you know our patients that are under diabetes care and they're given completely conflicting information to what we're telling them and then patients just don't know which way to turn really i think that's really difficult but i think it's those that if they see patients that are have made a change to their life um and they're not even curious and and I think that's really tough. And I think that for some people, I think they're still just going to go down that route of what they've always been taught. And I think it's that um, lack of curiousness that I find, yeah, most tough to manage. Because if you've got a patient sitting in front of you, so for example, one of our practice nurses at work, she's got Crohn's. She has will have absolutely no problem me talking about her. She's... Um, 
uh, been essentially for the last 100 days, she's done um, intermittent fasting, low carb approach. And in during that time, she's lost 10 kilograms. Um, she ha- essentially has her all her inflammatory markers are essentially now normalized. She's mm-hmm. had the lowest fecal calprotectin level that she's ever had, which is negligible, which is essentially so, a marker of inflammatory bowel disorders. So okay, I was going to say, what is that? Fecal? Yeah, so it's what something that the gastro team or we'll do to see if their inflammatory bowel disorders, so ulcerative colitis or Crohn's is active. Okay. And hers, hers is essentially negative. It hasn't been that way for a long time. And, and what's it called? Fecal? Fecal calprotectin. Calprotectin. Okay. Yeah. I've heard of that before. And um and she spoke to her her gastro consultant about it, who is great. Um, you know, I've worked in Southampton for a long time and I think, you know, the team are just amazing. But, you know, the the response was, well, the jury jury's still out on that. You know, and I just think, okay, that is one person. I absolutely agree. And but I think there's so much anecdotal evidence now with so many patients who are, who are making a difference that surely that needs looking into. But I also wonder, I think that, I think for the, I think I'm probably slightly harsher, however, on the diabetic, my diabetic colleagues. I think that's where I would probably struggle with more. I think that for, the, for them, I almost think it's to, to a degree of willful, willful blindness. Yeah. Like, why are they not looking at this information and at least giving patients the opportunity to learn about it and to make a difference um and it's when we hear our patients who are you know still being told everything in moderation and it doesn't matter what you eat you just need to change your insulin dose you know and it's these kind of things it's just but that's not the answer that's that's not what is going to help them um, and actually it's you're just managing it isn't it it's just yeah. managing the condition it's not yeah, actually, it's it, not improving quality of life no and actually for a lot of time it's badly managing their condition and I think that's what I struggle with I think maybe for some of my other colleagues maybe you know whether I'm just being kind because they're my GP colleagues and I know you know I think the thing is that medics work incredibly hard long hours and there is a degree of just trying to make it through the day and the weeks and maybe not having the time to critically appraise the evidence so I entirely get that but I think that's where the specialists really need to be looking and changing their advice yeah and um Dr Brian Lenski who who was on our podcast um a while back and he often says that Dr Burnout and he's he's from the USA that Dr Burnout is really massive and suicides in doctors is really massive in the states but i i think it's just carrying on as they are is a very short term vision because yes they're overloaded with work but actually if you removed even 10% of your patients because they're now healthier and they don't need to come either as often or as much and they don't need much attention eases the workload surely yes but I think the problem is is that in medicine for a long time we've been firefighting and I think it's really 
difficult to get out of that mode of firefighting. And I think we've had an absolute nightmare over the last month with which is all over the news. I mean, everybody knows about it. Um, but I absolutely agree. I think that we need to look at prevention and reversibility. And that's the only way we're going to help the health service. And that's worldwide or, you know, certainly very much in the Western world. So I think if you look at it, the um, the fastest growing health emergency is the diabetes pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is but the the really concerning thing is it is actually a preventable pandemic. Yes. Um, and if you look at the, the data is really quite astounding. So sort of globally, it's estimated, I think, 537 million patients have um, diabetes with, and 90 percent of them are going to be type two diabetes, which is going to be therefore lifestyle related. Um, in the UK, we've got approximately 5.5 million people with type 2 diabetes. And on top of that, another 13.6 million who are at an increased risk of um, de- of developing type 2 diabetes and already on, are on the slippery slope to developing type 2, 2 diabetes with poor metabolic ha- health. And... I think that the key is to almost start again and really try and look to see where we can prevent disease um, in the first place and take every opportunity that we can to do that. Um, But also make patients understand that they can reverse their conditions. And I think a lot of people including medic medics clinicians you know they when patients develop hypertension or type 2 diabetes it's almost seen that this is a now lifelong chronic disease and it doesn't have to be um and i think we need to give patients hope so that they can change you know make those changes uh, and they are aware of that and they can make a difference to their life um and give them the tools in which to do that um and, and I think the other thing is that that often I think if I think back to when I was at medical school so it may be different now I mean that was 22 years ago but I think the sole focus we really was on diagnosing disease yes um and then how do we treat it and not but that's treating it with pills and we know about the all the issues with the pharmaceutical industries and their influence on guidelines and and all the money that's put into research for new medication. And that's, you know, and, and in some cases we do need medication, obviously. So I would never deny that. But I think that there is so many opportunities that we can have to um, make to support patients to make lifestyle changes so that they can prevent them in the first place or as I say reverse them and I think it's just taking those opportunities and I think that's where I've become so passionate about lifestyle medicine and I think if you look at the things that you know as I say like people like David Unwin who's absolutely amazing um, has made such a difference to his patients and I think has been so as I said so influential on how I now look at things he was really burnt out and when a patient spoke to him about this, he at least had the um, grace to actually 
admits he didn't know about low carb and that actually but was then curious enough to look into it and I think that's the real key and now you know he's making a massive difference to his patients by having looked into it and he is giving his patients hope I think Um, only his patients because if you look his practice is about nine and a half thousand people mm. quite a small but how he's influenced thousands of well I'm saying thousands maybe hundreds maybe I'm exaggerating no I'm saying thousands of doctors I was going to say but also thousands of people because he's reaching out he's all around the world I know last weekend he was at um the symposium of metabolic health in Mm -hmm. Boca Raton in Florida yeah um he he's reaching so many people and validating that this is something you can try not that you have to try it but you can try it and I think I think Louise and I spoke about at the end of the podcast we released this week is that sometimes you need validation from somebody in I'm going to say authority I hate that word but somebody who understands health um, to say yes give it a go try it because it might work for you and I think he has been key 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 in in doing that and he's so humble and lovely no absolutely which makes it even better (laughs) um but I think that's the thing is I think that um I think we have to really look at what standard of care is and I and I think I was listening to a podcast the other day on some journey I was on because I am essentially a geek so I was doing that and um it was talking about what was standard care and they were talking essentially about what we think is good care but actually maybe when we really look at it it's not and I think to start off with I my initial reaction was I don't know what you're talking about why is you know and I think they were talking about how much input some patients may need um and I was thinking but actually we don't have the time or the resources to do that so that's unrealistic but I think when I had time to reflect on it I thought actually you are right we need to make better changes to how we offer healthcare and I think that is really difficult when you've got for example GPs some of them still have 10 minute appointments we have 15 now but it's still essentially most of the time you know we're running late or you know we've got lists of patients and phone calls etc to do and so the patient comes in you you know, you diagnose them, you want to treat them, but actually we're not probably making the opportunities we could. And that's where I think from, I mean, I undertook a, a lifestyle, a diploma in lifestyle medicine with the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine about four years ago now. And that was also a huge help in making me see things differently. And I now overrun all the time in my surgery. I mean, I did before, but now I'm even worse. Um, but but actually it's, it's saying there is an opportunity all the time you know so for example I saw a patient the other day who came in purely about a mole they were worried about that could have taken me two minutes instead 25 minutes later I'm still there because I don't even know how it happens you get onto a different conversation we started talking about health anxiety and then I so we started discussing well did you know that dietary change can maybe help with your mental health and how that can impact and got into that discussion. So I think there is always an opportunity how to get in there and, yeah. and how to make a difference. And I think we've got to look at that a bit better. And I think that often 
people want a quick fix as well. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm sorry, doc, I'm not sleeping very well and it's really impacting on my life. Or, okay, well then let's look about your sleep regime. Let's look about what you're eating, you're drinking. When do you go to bed? And I think we have to, we're so busy that often we're not necessarily having those conversations. Yeah. Um, And also I think sometimes people don't want to hear it either because they do want a quick fix. And we have generated that 24-7 culture where we want everything now and, you know, when we want it. And actually sometimes we need to do a little bit of work on it. But I think actually if you give the, if you give patients an opportunity to make changes and say, what do you want to do? Um, and that actually you can make a difference, then actually often they will choose make taking the lifestyle approach. Yeah. And and I think that's where we've really got to to look at that and actually, and then how do we do that? So for example, I think in our surgery now for at least the last couple of years, we all our chronic disease um appointments were at least 15 minutes but essentially we sat down as a team and said well the problem is with the 15 minute they come in they get their blood pressure and weight done etc um and then all they have by the time that's all you know documented they've been fed back their blood results you've probably got about five minutes or less to um give them any advice and then what are you doing in that time you're giving them generic advice which actually for the most part was wrong um you know eat less move more I'm not saying you don't need to move more but um but actually it's what are you eating and then so essentially we've changed all our chronic disease appointments to half an hour now to have that opportunity that the patient so those sort of changes can be explored a little bit more but i think actually you probably need to take that even further so um so i think that really got so I think that whole podcast got me thinking more so for example we've now we're really lucky we've got two now great health and well-being coaches in our surgery so we can refer patients to them um, and help support them make a difference but when they started and only in October so it's a work in progress um, and I said okay we're hopefully going to get as many patients we can seen you can have six sessions with them then they need to stop and your goal within those six sessions is to empower patients to make changes and sustain it. Yes. And that was where I was I was coming from. And I think that then that for say just last week and I think that's where we really need to be able to stop and think and actually understand where we need to change and be willing to change. Yeah. And so I was, you know, I think it really got me thinking that actually, you know what, for some person who, for a patient who's developed type 2 diabetes or they've had a bit, you know, they've been obese for the last 30 years, that didn't happen overnight. No. That took it years to develop. Yeah. It's habits that took years to develop. So why am I expecting someone in six sessions to make a change that is going to be long lasting? Yes. And I think that's where I kind of really woke up to that. And I was like, oh, dear God, what I have been doing and what I've said is wrong. And actually, we really need to make a change to that. And so already yesterday, I sort of sent out a, you know, email to agree a meeting in the next couple of weeks saying, what are we going to do about this? Actually, these are my thoughts. What can we do to try and actually um, support patients in a much more individualized approach so there was me thinking we were doing individualized approach but we're not so actually I think we really need to rethink what we think standardized care is 
and move on with that. And I think that we only have a finite resource. So we're going to have to do a little bit of blue sky thinking around that and how we do that. Yes. And I, I mean, you know, Ollie and Ollie Lester and Mark Hancock. Mm. Um, you know, the PHC is a great resource because there are many ambassadors on there that would be willing to run courses for free. You know, they would they would happily give their time. You know, I, me too. If I could get in with my local surgery and they would let me run, a, I've spoken to them, but, you know, they're not that interested. But as you are interested, there's loads of people out there that would love to help because we see it as a, something positive. It's a way of giving back. It's paying it forward. It's... Um, you know, if we're all healthy, I, I often think about, and I'm, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. I often think about when I'm 80 years old, who's going to be around me? Because most of my friends will probably be either gone or sitting in a home or um, unable to go out or going to hospital appointments or whatever it is. When I'm ready to I'm not, I'm, I think climb a mountain, but I've never wanted to climb a mountain in my life. So I probably won't at 80, but able to do stuff and go on holiday and do things. And so for us, it's important that our peers are healthy as well, because otherwise, what have we got to look forward to? A life being on your own is not, is not that enticing. And of course, we can find younger people to be with, but it's nice to be with peers as well. So as a society, it is good for us to be healthy. And I think, you know, we want to pay pay it back and give it back. So, yeah, that's one resource for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, and I think, for example, um, I've used Ollie and Mark. So Mark is actually is, is allowing one of our health and wellbeing coaches to observe one of his groups. And she's doing that now so that she can then start running group sessions. And I think, um, and Ollie's um, had one of our health and wellbeing coaches go down to one of his meetings, you know. And I think that's where this group are so passionate. It's not about hiding what we know. It's about developing things and providing support that can help each other and society. And I think you've got to look at people like... Um, I can't remember his name. Oh, David Oliver, who's done his um, Freshwell app, free app. I mean, that's amazing resource. Um, the New Forest PCN team who are with Neil Moody, who are allowing us to use their information, you know, and signpost patients to his website. There are so much out there. But also I see it in our patients. So one of our patients who he's only in his 50s, but real problem, real problems with his type 2 diabetes and was getting leg infections etc and and he was chatted to about low carb from one of our you know two amazing chronic disease nurses and um and he's now doing incredibly well you know his legs are healing he's reversing his type 2 diabetes and is feeling so much better but on top of that he's now doing a low carb group at his work fabulous and I think that's what's so amazing is that actually when people understand what a difference it makes to their lives, and it's not just weight, it's about how you, you know, making you feel more energized, less brain fog, sleeping better, um, all the positives that it can have. I think it's just, it becomes infectious. And I think that's why we're so keen to, um, 
to, to as you say pay it forward or share it with other one other people and I think you know I'm um, clinical director of our local PCN and I attend a lot of meetings and I so so many times I find myself interrupting in these meetings and saying but why are we just doing it this way why are we not thinking about the diet and the impact why we, we need to incorporate these in these services and I'm sure there's you know laugh and get fed off of me sort of spouting off all the time but I can't help myself because I am just so passionate about it that I want to make a difference you know and I think it's really sad I find it really tough when patients come in and they're saying, you know, then 60s, 70s, and like you say, in ill health. And they say to me, oh, don't ever get old, doc. And I do sort of like laughingly say to them, yeah, but if you weren't getting, if you weren't getting old, you'd be dead. You know, so, you know, so I, actually there is a silver lining to that. Um, but then, but it's also that you've got patients in their 40s, 50s saying, oh, it's just a sign of getting old. And it's like, and it's, not when did this become the norm when did this become that you have to have you know your aches and pains or that you've put on weight or um any condition that you have or you're starting to get high blood pressure when did that become okay and acceptable in your 40s and 50s and that that becomes the normal comment and this is where I think that you know someone might be coming about their knee pain but this is where I, I think it's so important as medics or clinicians that we say it doesn't actually have to be this way and actually I can help and support you or we have services around us can help support you to to make that difference and it's actually and I think there was a quote once that someone put that it's about health span not lifespan yeah and and you know your your laughing comment about you know if you want to you know climb a mountain at 80 but why not yeah absolutely. why can you not be you know if that's what you want to do you know, and actually I probably would, you know, why can you not be climbing a mountain at the age of 80? There is really no reason that you can't if actually we create that healthy environment yeah. and lifestyle. And I always say to people that it's about be not only fit for life, but fit for living, because you don't want to be sitting around in a home at the age of 85 or 90 waiting for your kids to come and visit who don't want to come and visit because um who wants to go and visit in a home they don't want to do that and you're sitting there waiting all week for them to come and see it you should be out and about and still enjoying life and you know within my um health coaching we talk about you know you live a full life and then you drop dead and that's my goal is to live a full life and drop dead at some point i don't want to decline into old age and and health issues it's just I want to go full out full on and it, my life is much fuller now than it ever was before yeah I, I absolutely agree that I wouldn't have never considered before and I plan to keep that going and so, so what what doesn't matter what age I'm, I always say I, I want to live to 107 but you know even if I get to 75 if I just drop dead I don't care Oh, I won't care because I won't be here to worry about it. No. I, I always used to say to my grandma something that you said earlier. She always used to say, oh, getting old is so horrible. And I always used to say better than the alternative. Um, because, you know, if you're alive, you're alive. If you're Maybe dead. that's a better way of pushing it. That I should probably maybe think of using instead of, well, you know, if not, you're dead. So, yes, good point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's true. It is true. And I think this is where, yeah, I think this is where we just all need to kind of just reconsider what we're doing. And I think that's where 
we do I think the only way we can really now sort of get on top of things like you say in terms of um, the health service etc is about people making a difference and we need to support them to do that and how to do that because again it's not just you know um, well um, you know for example I was just saying well eat low carb well actually that's not enough because how do they do that what what are the behavior changes that they need to make and I think that's where patients need more support to do that because our behaviors become so ingrained and sometimes it's very difficult to think out of the box of how to change them and and sometimes just a few little nudges in the right directions can get you thinking but it's how do you replace these habits or or or, you know prevent them in the first place and Mm. I think that's what we've really got to look at as well and I think but that's where you know we can all do that and I think that's where both secondary and primary care can develop those skills yeah I'm I'm, you know we're not saying everybody has to do it but just give it as an option and people can choose you know you said some some people and I think you 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 mentioned about the being uh, sleep deprived I think in that given instance then maybe a a quick solution is needed because when you're sleep deprived you know you can't you can't barely function um but you do it from a standpoint of this is what we're going to do short term to give you some sleep and then you're going to come back and we're going to work on lifestyle changes and sleep hygiene and all that stuff because when they come to you and they're sitting in front of you and they haven't slept for six weeks I know what that's like um they probably can't even begin to think about making any changes because everything is just too much. So maybe a short-term approach of medical help is needed, but then then the lifestyle stuff has to kick in to sustain that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also giving the patients the opportunity. So I think that's the same, same, for example, like some people with, you know, significant hypertension, so high blood pressure, they may well need some medication to start off with. But I had a conversation with my with a patient only a couple of days ago where I said, you know, I'd really like and actually his blood pressure wasn't that bad. So probably we could have held off. But I said, what would you like to do? I gave him information, etc. And I said, you know, we can you can either just go for it in stages and we can monitor it, your blood pressure, or we can start on medication and you can see how you get on with your lifestyle changes and see if we can support you to make the changes so that you can then come off blood pressure medication. And his response was that actually, yes, he would like to start medication. And so I did that. And but he also wants to make those changes. So I think it's not so although I'm, I'm very much a lifestyle first medicine second, I am also very aware that sometimes we need medication, but also and that is appropriate. But we also need to give patients that choice. And it's not just maybe about what I want to do or what I think the patient can do. And I think sometimes I can probably get a little bit clouded about that because I can get so excited that actually maybe they can make a change and they can make a difference. Um, But the patient's maybe not ready or there's too many things going on in their life that they can't do that at the moment. And it's also then what do you focus on? And I think you need to give the patient or the person the opportunity to see what is identify what their first goal is. So someone may be a, a, a new type 2 diabetic and you're going through dietary changes with them. But as you say, their life is really stressful at the moment for whatever reason and they're not sleeping. So actually, 
before we do we need to give them medication to help with the type type 2 diabetes first while we concentrate on how we can support them with at the stress and their sleep and then go back to that yeah you know and although they can impact each other it's almost allowing the patient to say what they need to identify first yes. you know and, and and allowing them to choose their own goals and that's informed consent really isn't it yeah it's part of informed consent is you know your clinical knowledge what you think is good but also what the patient wants to do as well absolutely and some people may just go do you know what I went to Slimming World and it worked for me last time can we, I'm going to do that great yeah absolutely if that's what you want I'm going to give you the information on low carb and but if you want to go down a, a different route then that's absolutely fine you know because that is your choice and if that works for you that's great but I but I do also think that we have to give them that option and I think that's where a lot of people aren't giving them that option because they don't know about it mm. um or they just agree with it yeah and, and I think that's the tough one yeah so can we change track a little bit and get a yeah. bit more personal about you and find out um how you low carb and how that has affected your life um so I think I've done probably low carb on and off about the last three or four years but probably took it really much more seriously about 18 months ago I'd probably say when I think I just I was going through swings and roundabouts with my weight and don't get me wrong I've never been significantly overweight but probably a bit chubby um and um so I think I made a I would say probably just going back I think that you know, a couple of years ago, lots of work stress, I was burning out and finding things really difficult and feeling anxious a lot of the time. Um, and so I decided that I was going to really go for it for two months, I was going to go full on low carb stroke keto, and I probably was majority of time in keto. And I think that experiencing that myself, um, when I was strict about it, really how much difference that made to me I was less anxious I was sleeping better I had more energy and I think that's all the positives that I really found and that's almost where it, so yes I did lose some weight but actually for me maybe because I wasn't significantly overweight that wasn't really the biggest part of it for me it was actually how it made me feel mm. and I think that certainly with the demand that is on general practice now um, and I was only saying this the other day to a, a couple of friends that normally I take an annual leave week sort of every couple of months, just because I think by the time so I'm so full on that by the time I get to a couple of months, I'm exhausted um, and I'm getting grumpier and um, not sleeping as well, a bit more snappy. And I found that actually I find now that as I'm coming towards that two months when I'm going to have a break, I've still got quite a lot of energy to go. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I'm and I think that's that I'm not hitting the wall. I used to seriously hit the wall a lot and I'm just not doing that as much anymore. Um, but absolutely. So I think so largely I stick to low carb where I can. Um, but I, without question, have impulse control issues when it comes to um, food. And again, I wouldn't put myself in a category as having a carb addiction or um you know but I think certainly if I walk around the workplace and there's 
a biscuit, if I have one, I'm going to eat the whole packet. Mm. Um, and I'm going to go back and back. So I think that's so I think that's where I still struggle a little bit with. And so I have to really focus on sort of batch cooking. Um, so I've got my meals prepared to take to lunch to, to, for lunch to work. Um, because if not, if I find something to get my hands on and I spy it, I'm going to struggle to keep away from it. Yes. Um, and I absolutely hate cooking. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Um, hate it. Rather not be in the in the kitchen in any way, shape or form. So for me, um, actually, I'm probably more erring now towards the side of, side of carnivore because it's so much easier for me. Um, I just don't have to bother. So I might make a, a chili for couple of days or um I'll just put a whole load of chicken wings and um drumsticks in the oven and that's my meal for the week and actually I'm cool with that <laughs> I you know I'm not really that bothered otherwise but um but uh, you know I might have steak and an egg for tea and my husband's going what is wrong with you why are you just eating that you know but um so I think that causes a little problems at home because you know, um, you know, he doesn't want to eat just meat, although he loves meat, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, but apart from that, it's easier for me because then I don't have to cook particularly. I mean, I wouldn't really count putting chicken drumsticks in the oven as cooking, to be fair. But, you know, but there are some people who love their food. So it's about, um, you know, recipes, exploring recipes that can help them with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's where I've gone down the route, really. Um, and I think still... So I wouldn't say I was, I'm not 100% low carb. I might, you know, if I go out on the weekend, I'm going to have a couple of cocktails, you know. Um, and if I go out with friends, I may have a pizza. But I think largely, particularly in the week, I stick with low carb most of the time and occasionally intermittent fast. Yeah, good. So so do you just lunch and supper? Yeah, so I haven't had breakfast for a long time. And and that's I mean, I'm simply not hungry in the morning. So that's fine. So I completely ignore that. And then I. Yep. So then I basically get hungry somewhere around 12 o'clock. Um, so at work, generally, I'll stop maybe about one o'clock and just try and um, and have a, you know, a few drumsticks um, or whatever I've got that day. Uh, a boiled egg, obviously, clearly away from the rest of the staff um but yeah so that's a January eat and then I won't eat until I get home and I tend to get home quite late so half seven eight um but then I'll have something then so for example I'm also really quite sad that I'm also happy to eat the same thing every night so I think probably Monday to Thursday this week um again my husband thinks I'm really weird but I had an omelette every day uh for tea with some grated cheese I put some mushrooms in it um and I'm, I'm actually fine with that so yeah that's the sort of thing I would eat yeah I, I my husband is the cook in our house and and I was thinking he doesn't often do different recipes It's often just a piece of meat with two vegetables and but if I have to cook for myself I was saying this in our Facebook group a steak or a steak and eggs or a steak with some cream sauce that's about all I want to do because I just want to be in the kitchen 10 to 15 minutes and out again and I, I don't want to be in there doing all sorts of recipes and things like that not no, that exactly. I can cook and I have cooked, but yeah, the quicker, the better in and out is easy. Yeah. I don't think I was designed to cook if I'm honest. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's where actually, I kind of think that actually probably you and I are quite, they're probably the luckiest because actually we're not really that bothered. And actually it is easy for now. I just see it as eating for health. So it's a different mindset. And I think, 
a lot of people, you know, love, you know, want to cook a really lovely meal and they eat for enjoyment. So it's not saying that I don't enjoy my steak because I do. Um, but I think, you know, it is a different mindset, isn't it? And I think, um, but I think it's also the issue, I think it's where people struggle is when you go to somebody else's house um, or they're buying you treats and things like that. And then I think if someone buys me a box of chocolates, you know, I am going to eat them. And this is the problem. <laughs> so I think so I can also but I also therefore empathize where other people are coming from because I do understand that and how difficult it is. Yeah. And I think we're the thing is we're surrounded by cake and sweets and alcohol, you know, anything you're gonna celebrate is around unhealthy food, really, isn't it? And it's it's always around us. And I think if you struggle to say no, that can be a big issue. Yeah, no, I think, and that's the thing is that cake culture is really problematic. And I think the lovely Lou Walker has been going on about this for ages on Twitter and has done, you know, looked into it. Um, And the reluctance, particularly of work culture, which is clearly obviously up in the media at the moment, after they said essentially um, cake in the workplace is the same as passive smoking. Um, And I think a lot of people would have laughed at that, but actually it's really true um and and I think that so I think people at home can control their home environments if they need to or they want to but people often can't control their work environments um in what food is around the workplace and I think particularly I don't know what other offices are like but I think certainly having you know worked in the hospital for years you know and patients give you you know tins of chocolate to say thank you um but everyone brings in, you know, people have cake Fridays or um, and things like that. And I think it makes it really difficult. And I think so. I think, you know, people kind of laugh at me. Well, I think they're laughing or they might be, you know, saying other things at work about me. But in terms of how I came, how I came about it at work. So I think that uh, probably about a couple of years ago now, I made the tentative request that actually we didn't have food downstairs in our staff reception area and it only went upstairs and um, I said what do people think so I gave it out as a you know do you think we can change this and I think that that was because often there was always chocolate crisp biscuits on the table downstairs and people and I think you just walk past it when I come out of my office just because I'm a little bit stressed I just need sort of 30 seconds gap and then you'd grab a biscuit and I think everyone else was doing that um and it was interesting, really interesting, the comments. And I think that the biggest sort of comment was, no, no, I think people have the right to have the food out if they want it. And it's about, um, and people need to control it. It's about willpower. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these kind of comments. And I just, and I was a little bit taken aback, although I probably should have expected it. So I ignored it for a while. Um, but me being me, you know, I was probably irked a little bit about it. And I thought, no, I'm going back to this because I think it's really important to create a healthy work environment. Um, and so I did actually make the dogmatic decision, which some people will still find difficult. I won't lie. I think that some people still think I was an absolute idiot for doing it. Um, but I essentially said, no, there has to be a ban on food downstairs it can go up into the meeting room um but not in the work environment downstairs and actually if I had my way it would be not anywhere yes but I think um but I think you have to make some allowances and um but I think I think 
people how's that, how that gone down now still really not that well <laughs> but um but i'm rocking with it um but i think it's also that but in addition to that it, I don't even know when it started because it happened. I mean, I've been at work uh, where I work now for 10 years or longer. And everyone, when they go on holiday, they bring some form of chocolate or food back from where they've been. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say, I haven't done that for the last three years. They get a magnet or a tea and coffee. I tend to get tea or coffee from where I've been if I've been abroad or something like that. But but I don't understand why we need to do that. If it's someone's birthday, so they've been caking. Yep. And, I, and I think, but, you know, if you've got a staff of 40 people, it's pretty much always someone's birthday. Yes. So, you know, so I think that then you've always got stuff in there, you know. So I think that's, uh, um, and then people who are really trying to make a difference are really struggling to do that because, as I say, it's not about willpower. And, and I think Jen, Jen Unwin has done so much amazing work on this. I mean, the Unwins are just you know, stupendous, aren't they? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, love to hate them. No, I don't really, but you know what I mean. Um, but uh, yeah, they, I mean, Jen's done this amazing book, Fork in the Road, which really does help people to understand about food addiction and, and how it is actually, you know, the response, the physio- physiological response that you have to food and how the food industry create food so it is addictive. Yes. So it does hit those um, senses where we release our dopamine and we release the serotonin that makes us feel better and warm and cosy and a little bit high from the food that we've eaten and then how it makes it moreish. And I and so I so it's really difficult to overcome, you know, and I think. And so for some people, they need need to really avoid that food and it can't be in their face. Um. But and I think, again, at home, you could do that. You can clear out your cupboards. You cannot buy it when you go shopping. But if when you go to work, you're trying really hard to make a difference and then you've got chocolate crisps, you know, cake sitting on the table. It's really not helping when you lack that impulse control because you do have an issue with it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know really what the answer is, because I think that there is also clearly the argument about being uh, being a nanny state. And I think public health has is really teetering on a seesaw often of what of where do you cross the line of becoming about people having their own capacity to make their own decisions versus trying to make the nation healthier. And I think but that in the you know, and I think that's really tough. But I think and that also then applies to the food environment at work and the decisions you make there. So, yes, I would say for for some people, I think it's been a positive mood uh, move but I think for a lot of people it's still seen as negative yeah. and if I go downstairs I'm saying why are these why are these crisps here they need to go upstairs you know I can almost as I turn around probably almost feel the you know <laughs> the looks I'm getting but it's okay I've got broad enough shoulders uh you know but I'm also trying to help them it's not it's not about um I think it's my I want to make everyone feel healthier and change things but I, you know, I guess not everybody wants to, and that's okay too. Yeah. Yes, and I, I, I agree the bit about the nanny state of we have become a bit too much of a nanny state. Absolutely. But then again, I think how can people make the changes that they need to make? Generally, one, if they haven't got the information, because we're not being given the information. I mean, if a, if a patient comes to you 
they're so lucky because they've got you to say, how about making some changes? But 99.9% of us around the country in the UK and probably anywhere in the Western world are not going to get that. Um, And then the other thing is, how can they make a change when the choices that they're making are keeping them addicted to the choices that they're making? So it's, it's a hard one to do and I think all we've got to do is just keep educating 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 and keep shouting from the rooftops how we feel how better we feel and all these things and hopefully you know even yeah, if and I think two people make a difference and then they tell it to two more people we're, we're slowly reaching out right and I see a significant difference I don't know about you but from when I started on in this way of eating I see a significant difference to people's knowledge about what they're doing now than five years ago or four years ago yeah and I think um, knowledge really is power and I think that's for everyone that's for clinicians and to the public and I think that um, and I think it's delivering it in a way that people will understand as well isn't it I think that we've got a lot of you know diabetics who still don't understand what their HbA1c means you know and I think if they don't even know those basics then how are they going to make changes? Because they don't even know what they're aspiring to. And I think that's where we need to make sure that people have the information to do that and we can support them to do that. Mm. And I think also, you know, you say to some, most people know sugar's not good for you, but they don't understand all the other foods that break down into sugar. Yeah, and it is really putting it that simply. And I think that's what I due to patients and you know, I say look we all know what sugar is sugar right and you know, they'll say yeah like you know cake chocolates and things and I said but do you know that starchy carbohydrates break down into sugar and and then they they look uh, most of them look at you blankly and most of them don't even and, and several people don't even know what starchy carbohydrate is so you have to list them but actually I think looking back to even myself three or four five years ago I had to learn that information you know, and I'm a medic. So actually, why do I expect someone else to know that information? You know, and I think so. And it, so it is putting it in ways that patients will understand. And that may be differently depending on the person. But I think we also have to make people understand that carbs are addictive and it's not necessarily their fault. Yeah. And I think that's it. I think we've got into this blame game that, you know, you look at someone and it's the automatic assumption is that because they're overweight, that they must be lazy or they've got no willpower, um, you know, but actually what's going on in that patient's life or that person's life? You don't know. Why are you judging? But also that actually the food industry is making this food addictive and some people have genuine addiction. Um, but I do also think that we do have this issues where obesity has become the norm and um and I think if you see everyone looking like you then I think how do you almost understand that that's not normal anymore yeah well but it is normal now but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be exactly so in in your profile picture that you sent me it looks like you were possibly in the north pole maybe uh yeah so when you asked me to yeah show a profile picture I'm not really great at saying just showing a you know a headshot generally so yeah so I actually that was in Norway last year when um last January I went um husky sledding um an absolutely amazing experience and um yep I really love um going out and getting experiences like that 
Uh, I think they're so much fun. And um, yeah, I'm much more about experiences and memories than um, uh, material possessions. Yeah, fabulous. Oh, that sounds amazing. I might have to add that to my list of things to do in my I life. I would. <laughs> Husky sledding, yeah. Um, and there was somewhere, oh, so I want to go back to, because you were saying people in the in the practice are not happy about having the food moved upstairs. How are they, how are the other people generally in supporting you in offering this low carb lifestyle medicine? Um, do you know, I think I'm incredibly lucky in my practice. Um, we have, I have three other partners and a salary GP, um, two amazing chronic disease nurses. And I think that we've, I think I started promoting and don't get me wrong, it wasn't an instant embracement of it. But I think a lot, potentially some of it was just, well, just let Karen get on with it because, you know, she's often one again about something. Um, but actually, I think having, I think probably maybe to a certain extent, worn them down. <laughs> but I think as you start showing them the evidence, I think actually they've all come on board. And I'm, yeah, really lucky, I think, with the partners that I work with. And I, I know some colleagues that have had far greater difficulty in getting their colleagues on board I think with it um and there is the joke you know when someone goes you know do what you do for PCOS anymore and 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 I went have you tried low carb with them you know and I remember the doctor going is low carb the answer for everything (laughs) pretty much actually yep yep I think so so you know so there is sort of a, a quite a degree of sort of piss taking out of it um but it's true um and then actually we sent our diabetic nurses on low carb courses and they have 100% embraced it. Um, and so we've got that great service for our diabetic patients now. And I think I've also, also embedded into the their way of thinking that actually when they're talking to patients and, and treating them, it is about lifestyle first. And so bless them. They will, if they think the patient might need medication or they're when they're not getting anywhere, et cetera, then, then they will say, you know, their blood pressure is this. I have discussed lifestyle medicine with them, <laughs> but do you think they still need a blood pressure medication? Yep. Yeah, you know, that's fair enough. You know? So I think that sort of approach is now the norm in our practice. And I think therefore our patients are incredibly lucky to when they're, for example, having their chronic disease check that that's always going to be embraced Mm. um so I think that's great and but I think also we've now we've also got a little group of staff that I started a um low carb fitness group with um that we call it the fit club um and we've doing that been doing that for a few months now um and there's five six of us and they're also making a difference and I think that's the thing is that actually even though Sometimes I'm sure people think I'm just going on again, you know, that some people are, it is making a difference to some people and some people do. And actually sometimes it's about maybe wearing them down a little bit. But I think also hopefully it's people, if you say it long enough and she always be enthusiastic and passionate and saying this is helping people, that actually they will then slowly when they're ready, come to it as well. Yes. And I think that's great. And, I mean, I do wear, I mean, essentially during COVID, I mean, obviously we all went into scrubs, which we weren't used to wearing. Um, 
and um and then actually slowly as we started to come out of covid i just started wearing to work leggings trainers and a t-shirt and i think that's and and on my t-shirt i have um as my husband fondly calls them my lecturing t-shirts but that's cool because <laughs> uh, i have things like type 2 diabetes is reversible um um eat real food you know lifestyle first medicine second you know so actually that is my work uniform now so I think I'm always providing that message. And you could argue that perhaps maybe I'm, you know, coming on a little bit too strong because it's in everything that I do. But I think it is really important. And I think that'd be, I'd rather embrace that way than not saying it at all. Yeah. And, um, and I think if you're passionate about it and constantly talking about it, then people will sit up and listen at some point, maybe not initially at some point, but I, the, you know, the same way they could be, brainwashed into saying you know the arcs of mcdonald's or the coca-cola sign is always mm. everywhere you go if they constantly seeing you with your t-shirt you know that is gonna impact at some point along the way i think that's a great idea yeah and i think i've even got one t-shirt which is actually probably my favorite which has got the you know crap at the top you know c R-A, well, obviously you know how to spell crap. I don't even know I was saying that. But actually it is, <laughs> just in case you don't know how to spell that, but it is actually saying, you know, carbohydrates and, you know, refined foods, those kind of things, and the picture of that. And that's a great T-shirt. And patients do comment on that, you know, and um, or they'll say, oh, what does your T-shirt say? You know, um, and then you'll suddenly get a comment saying, oh, I agree with that. Um, so I think that even if it's just that subtle, you know, message, uh, and someone's not ready to do that then that's fine but maybe at some point that'll just it's like a little message that uh, six months down the line a year down the line they're ready to take but I also really hope that it has that impact on the staff as well because I really want to see the staff feeling well and healthy yeah um you know and if I can help them to do that then great yeah um, fantastic and I think, you know, it's a touch point, isn't it? Your T-shirt's a touch point. Then you speak to them is another touch point. And then maybe they come back in three months' time and that's another touch point. And we know from marketing that you need so many touch points before you're ready. But maybe and in that time, they might have heard something somewhere else. And then and so it, it just sort of builds to the point where they think, hmm, maybe I need to look into this. Because I tend to think, if I hear something once, I may or may not notice. If I hear something a second time, oh, that's strange. And if I hear something three times, it's like, hmm, I really need to look into this. It's very an example. You mentioned fork in the road. Somebody mentioned fork in the road to me yesterday. And I said, I've got the book here somewhere, but I haven't read it yet. So now that's twice I've heard it in two days. That's going to be high on my list of next books to read is Forking the Road because that keeps coming up. So I think yeah. you have to keep keep on about it, keep keep making those touch points. But I think as well is that, like, for example, like with the staff at work, you know, because they're making a difference and you can see the difference and then they're talking about it and they're supporting each other. And I think that's what's so great as well is they are saying, oh, well, I did this and, you know, and it's not about just me dictating to them or discussing. It is a little bit like, well, what, you know, what, what, you know, what positives have you done this week? What do you, what have you found difficult? And then they're giving each other tips, um, you know, how they overcame something and what they did. And, but also to see them looking brighter and feeling more energized and, 
and then taking on other things like one of our nurses who's lost weight is feeling much better when she's working upstairs now instead of her patients being sent upstairs automatically to wait for her she comes down the stairs and grabs them from the waiting room so that's another difference you know and um one of our gps who will admit herself as she called herself fat she was over was significantly overweight and she knew absolutely about low carb she's our diabetic lead and she's great at it but for whatever reason wasn't in the place to do it herself and now the last six months she's made absolutely amazing steps she looks amazing she feels so much better and she's also then a really positive role model for other people yeah so it becomes almost like it's catching it, it is contagious and I think that's just fabulous we need infections like that we don't need COVID-19 we need infections yeah like exactly getting fit and feeling great and wanting to do more so have you noticed within your patient population any improvements have you kept any track of anything no so we're really bad at doing that (laughs) um so uh, that is next on the to-do list so I have had an excel spreadsheet sat on my desktop to share for I don't know probably about the last six months um and we keep saying yes we need to do all this data so um that is on the next to-do list but actually uh it'll be really interesting to see the data from my health and well-being coaches because um they are absolutely collecting data so they're coming up to their three months part soon so we will have that data and then we will continue collecting that data and the health and well-being coaches we're focusing mainly on metabolic disease really so um diabetes pre-diabetes obesity NAF old, so non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, so we're looking at those. So it'll be really interesting to see what those stats are showing uh, and where we're making a difference with that. And they are doing um, repeating blood work with them, but they're also doing, you know, really good work with them in terms of measuring waist circumference um, and doing their visceral fat measurement and not just relying on BMI. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to get through to people that actually BMI is not really the marker you, that you want to be looking at. It is sort of your triglycerides, HDL, waist circumference, visceral fat. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that we will get information and then we then, then the our diabetes nurses are going to go back and look at the information so we can get that from them as well. So, yeah, not as being as good as David Unwood in terms of collection. Um, but we will go back and do it in retrospect and then moving forward. Brilliant. And what about anecdotally? Um, patients improvement? Yeah, I think we're having some, yeah, so we've had some really good um, stories from patients who are doing really well So with their diabetes. So, for example, I had a, a patient that uh, must have been about a year ago now who I, she'd actually felt really well, but she had some blood tests, I think just routinely for a different reason. Um, and showed that she was probably diabetic and then I did her HbA1c which for those who don't know um under 48 is technically normal or um an over 48 and over is diabetic and hers was I think it was somewhere around 113 I think and really interestingly she was she had no real symptoms unless she had become just so used to those symptoms that she was normal so I had this real sort of moment with her that I spoke to her. I rang on the phone because I thought I, bet, I probably can't wait to, to chat to her about this before we need to do something. So I rang her when I got the information. And I think for the first time, I did have a little bit of a 
seat in pants moment when I was sort of saying, oh, um, okay, well, we need you to do, we need to make some changes. You're diabetic and you need to go, I really want you to do low carb and explain to her about that. And I said, okay, you've got two options because you don't have symptoms, essentially. You either go, you're either going to go hard now with low carb or you, um, we put you on medication and then you look at diet, et cetera. And, and so I gave her the opportunities and I say, I think I'd never really given that opportunity to a patient with such a high HbA1c before. But again, that's where the information from people like David Unwin can really give you a little more confidence that it's been done before. And um, she and, and where somebody else might think I was being negligible, you know, but actually she said, no, I don't want medication if I don't have to, you know, so I went, OK, well, then you really I mean, your HbA1c is very high, so you really have to go for it. And she did, you know, and I think three months later, it was around 70. Wow. Um, another three months later, she was 58. And I have to say, I haven't followed her up since then. Um, and she's, you know, she's obviously been monitored by the chronic disease team. And there would have been absolutely no reason why she couldn't have had metformin, for example, etc. But she didn't want that. And actually, it just shows what big differences you can do very quickly. Mm, yeah. Um, if you really make the changes. Um and and I think that I've had difference with patients in terms of their ulcerative colitis. You know, a patient that I only saw very recently who had really quite severe disease um, and had to have a stoma. And I gave him information on sort of low carb. And a couple of weeks later, he's already feeling significantly better. And I think and then and I think we're getting a lot of stories from patients with our chronic disease nurses all the time about where they've made a difference and actually how much better they feel in themselves and I and I think um so yeah lots of anecdotal stuff we just probably just need to put it all together to to, um, have the evidence that we can share with other people yeah yeah brilliant so we're coming to the end of our time together is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to mention yeah just I suddenly realized and so I don't get shot by Mark and Ollie I do need to um, just highlight Real Food Runners. So, um, you know, listeners probably have heard from their podcast that they founded Real Food Runners, which is for people who enjoy running, obviously, but do low carb or keto. And so I am part of that group and go to a park run, probably not as frequent as Ollie or Mark, but hopefully try and go sort of once a month. So I would say that anybody who um, wants to, you know, join in and become one of the members, you don't have to be in our area you can be anywhere so that's amazing um so I would say that that would be the, the thing I really have to promote as I say if not I will get slapped so <laughs> we'll include the links to their Facebook group um and the website in the um in the show notes yeah and that's again just a really positive example of where people are willing to share um with with other people and help yeah okay so um this is the point where we normally ask how can people get in contact with you and you said you haven't really got any way for people to get in contact with you yeah so um you're thinking about sharing your twitter profile with us but that will be in the show notes yeah i actually off the top of my head can't remember what it is today sorry did not prepare for that <laughs> well you weren't going to share it to be fair no. <laughs> it was only pushing you. um <laughs> But what Dr. Karen has said is that if anybody really, really wants to 
get in contact with her, then you can email us at the Fabulously Keto podcast and there's a contact form on the website and we will forward it to her for you. That's grand. So can we finish with your three top tips? Yep. So, yep, I was thinking about this and changed my mind a few times. Um, But, yep, so I think I'm going to go with set realistic goals. I think that's really important. So I think that a lot of people, they have these great ideas of how they're going to change everything, but actually they're not realistic. So, for example, there's no point saying I'm going to go for a half an hour walk every night if actually you know two nights you work really late etc you know so what is it so make really realistic goals and be quite specific about them so I am going to go for a 15 minute walk on a Wednesday and Saturday um and where you're going to go and what time you're going to do it and I think that's really important don't um do something you're not going to do because it just gets you down when you don't achieve it and you're just setting yourself up to fail so that's number one um I think the next thing would be to eat when you're hungry um and until you're full so I think the message that has been given for years and years and which I did until I obviously saw the error of my ways um was that um eat less um small portions but actually then what you just end up doing is feeling starving and then you eat more and you binge so I think that if you eat enough protein and fat then that is what's going to make you full. So if you need six chicken drumsticks instead of four to make you full, then go for it. Um, And I think also eat when you're hungry. And I think not because the clock tells you to. And I think if we think about Kellogg's or the people who, you know, um, devise breakfast, it's not the most important meal of the day, um, unless you're hungry at that time of the day. And then grand to eat. Um, but yeah, I think that we've got so used to going, well, I'm going to have to have my breakfast, lunch and tea, but you don't have to. So if you eat two or one meal a day, that's grand. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to interrupt you there and say, yeah. when I looked into it, breakfast only started in around the 1700s. So up until that point, we never used to eat breakfast. Oh, so really? only in the last 300 years, breakfast has become a thing. Um and and yet you, that breakfast is the most important meal of the day is such a mantra, isn't it? And I think yep. I say to people, well, it's more about breaking your fast at whatever time that is. But you do have to break your fast well. You do have to make sure you're getting enough protein and enough fat. But it doesn't mean a bowl of cornflakes. Or... No, and that's where Kellogg's, Kellogg's made it the most important meal of the day. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't have to be the marketing so, message it's a yeah, marketing. It's marketing yeah exactly to eat their sugar-filled cereal um so yeah and then I think my final thing is about eating real food and I think that's so important and um I think that a lot a lot of people go for processed food because they think it's cheap and easier and I think a lot of the time real um meat fish eggs etc are seen as expensive but actually they don't have to be um and also some people see it as a bath rather than you know making a quick pasta but actually you're just eating sugar and if you can um you know batch cooking is a really good way of doing that as well i think to helping but yeah eat real foods make your meals around meat fish and eggs if you're in the supermarket you should be in the outside aisles that's what i say to my patients you know if you're going down in the middle aisles it's really because you need tea and coffee 
or um, some washing up liquid. But otherwise, outside hours, real food. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's such it's it's a constant top tip that people are always giving us real food, real food. And I, I'm I'm 100 percent for real food. Yeah. Brilliant. So, Karen, thank you for being with us today. It's been fascinating talking to you. No, thank you for having me. Bye for now. Bye. I think acceptance by doctors to this way of eating and making lifestyles changes is what's going to help us reach the tipping point. Possibly even much quicker because we spoke about this on a few episodes ago about the the way if it's a coming from a doctor, it has much more importance. Um, so if there are any GPs out there who are listening to this podcast who haven't yet come on the podcast, then reach out to me via the website and recommend yourself um, on the recommend a guest form. Um, and even if you're not a GP, do you have a story that you want to share with other people? Do the same. Go to the Fabulously Keto website fabulouslyketo.com and fill out the recommend a guest section you can recommend yourself it's absolutely fine we love to hear people's stories we love to have on gps look i'm still saying we even though it's just me now um so anyway karen recognizes that it's about habit change and knowledge of what to do is not enough it's taken us years to develop these habits and we cannot expect to change them in six weeks. Carolyn's personal transformation was also fabulous because even though she didn't need to lose weight, she found so much more energy and was less anxious. She also notices that she isn't hitting the wall and isn't desperate for her regular breaks. And I love how she's encouraging all the staff to focus on their own health, even if they don't agree with her ways of keeping food away from the working area. And I also love that Karen is wearing T-shirts with messages that open conversations. So if you want to see the show notes, if you go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash one three zero. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. 
We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.